Amen. Thank you, Flemings and Mrs. Toole, for the music this morning. Wonderful, wonderful contribution to the service today. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, where we will be reading, and the ushers will be passing out the outlines as we read this chapter, which we're going to look at today. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels, we begin a transition here, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. And now the clarification of 11 contributions of Christ, the incarnate Christ. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name among unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject unto bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. As we open the word of God today to Hebrews chapter 2, I direct your attention now to verse 3. For herein is the theme of what needs to be communicated in the course of this chapter. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That is the theme. And the theme is that no, it's not by angels or any other power, 
but only through the shed blood of the incarnate Christ, as we sang in that last verse, the shed blood of the incarnate Christ, that we have salvation. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, as we look at this chapter today, that you'll give us clarity of thought, that you'll help me to move through it in such a way that it communicates the burden on your heart and on the Spirit of God to communicate to your people these wonderful truths in your word, to bring encouragement, to bring conviction, to allow the Holy Spirit to move freely, and that God might be glorified, Jesus might be received, and the Holy Spirit might work. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at uh, the third verse with me, first of all. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There's been some discussion about who the we is there, so we want to talk about that in just a moment. Of course, the author of the book of Hebrews, which was probably the Apostle Paul, is included when he says we. And uh, some have discussed whether this is believers or non-believers and come to various conclusions. But I think as we understand the book of Hebrews, which is a book written to Hebrew Christians and Hebrews who are being presented the gospel to be encouraged to become Christians, that the we here is kind of a categorical, all-inclusive statement that includes uh, Jews that are considering the gospel, Jews who are hearing the gospel, and other Jews who have already been saved. And so as the question is asked here, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? To the unbeliever, the issue is how should they ever escape hell if they do not receive the gospel, if they neglect so great salvation, which is going to be explained here in these verses. How will the unbelieving Hebrew, and we could say it of anyone here today, the same holds true for any unbeliever. How could any unbeliever How could any unbeliever avoid hell when they have an offer of so great salvation? And then looking at it from the standpoint of a believing person who is perhaps backsliding and disregarding the Scriptures, how shall we escape the judgment of God in our lives here on this earth if we neglect so great salvation, salvation which delivers us from sin as we live our lives on earth? How shall we escape judgment in our lives if we neglect this great salvation? And so now with that understanding, I turn your attention to the Word of God in verse 1. And we looked at verses 1 through 4 before. We looked at a couple aspects of this in the past. And we're going to skip over that in this message. And so we're going to start here and look at verse two, chapter 2, verse 1. And, and we're going to move through this fairly quickly. And it won't be uh, according to all the details of your notes. I give that to you to fill into some detail in, in, because I'm not going to cover all the detail. So let's begin to look at verse. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time they should let them slip. We talked about this in regard to communion and when we, when we were instructed in the communion to remember the death of our Lord through the elements of the communion, remember. Remember is a call not just to intellectual remembering, but to action. And, and here is a definition in verse 2, verse 1, chapter 2, of how easily, how easily the truths of the gospel can slip away by disregard, lack of attentiveness, Lack of attention. They can just slip away. And we, we fall into the, the arms and grips of the world 
Unbelievers deeper into sin, further from God. Believers, though saved, walking in the wrong direction because they haven't given earnest heed to the things which we have heard, which are going to be developed here. For if the word, verse 2, is spoken by angels was steadfast, that means it was permanent, it was certain, and every, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward. Uh, the law required that it be obeyed completely. It wasn't that you could just pick this part or that part of the law, but the law was to be believed completely. Deuteronomy 27, 6 said to those Old Testament believers, Cursed is he that, con that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. For failure to do any act of the law was an act of disobedience that received a just recompense of reward. No grace, no mercy. Law, which demanded the penalty if it was violated. The interesting part of verse 2 is here is the mention of angels. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. If we look at this previous chapter 1, the latter part of it, we find that the point of that chapter was this. Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Now you've been taught that and we understand that. And so it seems a little bit strange to us that anybody would think that angels could be superior to Jesus Christ. But throughout history and around the world, even in, in some groups today, in some Roman Catholicism and mystic Roman Catholicism, certain groups like that, it is angels that are the focus. It is the angels that have the power. And, and the emphasis here is that Jesus Christ is superior to the angelic realm. Well, one of the reasons that angels might have been so highly regarded is that in verse 2, somehow, in some way, angels had a part in the giving of the law. And that was a very dramatic, great event in the history of Israel. Surrounded by drama, surrounded by appearances of God in judgment and before Moses in his grace. And it made a real impression upon the people of Israel. And we don't understand completely how these angels were involved. If we look at Acts 7.53, it says, We have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. If we look at Galatians 3.19, it says, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So we have a disposition by angels, which speaks of an order or command of the angels. We have ordained, which speaks of a prescription or to arrange for them. And we see steadfast that speaks of their being known with certainty. I, 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 the, it's a struggle to know exactly what part the angels had in the giving of the law because those three verses I just read you in your notes, uh, the one here and two others, they, that's all the explanation we have. But angels were very much involved in the giving and administration of the law code according to these verses. So they had a very high 
responsibility and position. But now we go on and we read in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. No mention of angels. It didn't come forth through angels. It came first by the speaking of the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So the point is this. The great salvation that we can neglect is not connected with angels. It is connected with the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he passed that message on to others, namely apostles and people he empowered and even gave power to work miracles in order to uh, uh, show their authority. And then on to us to distribute to the world, not to angels. You don't see angels going around the countryside here today proclaiming the gospel. You see believers doing it, or I hope you do, because they're called to do that. The church and believers are called to evangelize the world, right? Matthew 28. Not angels. And so we find here that there is a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. The salvation offered to us, furthermore, is much greater than the law. Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and following, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. Not the law, not the law, but the gospel. The just shall live by faith, not by the law, but by faith. It is a great salvation because it is not a salvation that requires us to live up to the holy standards of the law, which exemplify the holiness of God, which we could never do. But it is a great salvation because it calls us to God through Christ in faith, which anybody could do right here today now. No work involved. It's a great salvation. Number two, it was spoken first by the Lord, not by inferior angels. Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than angels, as he hath an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Number three, it was confirmed by firsthand observers. We see this uh, written out in other places, particularly 1 John. We read these words in 1 John of, of, of the Apostle John who wrote the book. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard. The apostles heard Jesus. One of the requirements to be an apostle is you had to have walked with Jesus. You had to have seen his works and heard his words. And that's what he's referring to here as he states the uh, significance of what he's about to write. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Christianity is not a mystical religion. It is religion founded upon a man who was the spirit as God and became incarnate through the virgin birth and walked as a man upon this earth, not as a spirit. He was touched and heard and seen and secular records recorded. And all history of the world was changed because of it. He was a man. God also bearing them witness, 
these people who saw it, with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Those who walked with him, the 12 apostles in particular, on the day of Pentecost, had the Spirit come down upon on them and were empowered to do marvelous wonders and diverse miracles which demonstrated that they spoke on behalf of God. And the Jews in the world needed that to have an authentication that the words that they would write down in the New Testament and in Scripture 8 were truly God's words. And they, they could pass on that gift, that miraculous gift, by the laying on of hands of, on, on the next generation, but that was it. When that generation was gone, there would be no more sign miracles. When the apostles were gone, there'd be no more propagation of sign miracles through the laying on of hands. As a matter of fact, as we looked at this verse previously in verse Four, we found out that the sign miracles didn't even last the lifetime of those people, but they begin to subside and end by the time the book of Hebrews was written in sometime in the early 60 AD period. They passed away, but they were important while they were here because they authenticated those who saw the Lord himself that indeed they communicated the word of God and it could be trusted. Now, we move on here to, to our major guts of our topic here, verse 5. Here there is a transition that begins, and that transition takes us to 11 accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ that could only happen through his incarnation. Accomplishments that are very dear to us as believers. Jesus Christ did not become an angel Jesus Christ became a man. Now that's pretty significant. Because if Jesus Christ became an angel, that puts us out of his category. But if Jesus Christ became a man, that he's like one of us. He's one of us. We're, we're one of him. We're all the same kind. And that's what he did. He became a man. Now watch this. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. There's a community of believers in Jesus' day, in the day of the Hebrews, called Qumran. You probably heard about it. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. But along with those Dead Sea Scrolls, there were many doctrinal documents of that sect that they held that were unique and, and frankly quite strange. And uh, they highly elevated angelic activity. Angels. They taught that there was going to be an age to come in which the dominion would be Michael and his angelic subordinates. But that is not true. And that is refuted here. For it's not unto angels he hath put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. No. Where has he put it? Verse 6. But one in a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The implication here is that no, this future world, which by the way is the millennial kingdom, the world here means uh, an earth and uh, fully, the fully inhabited earth, uh, the whole earth brought together in one kingdom. No, it's not to angels, but understood here, it's to men, because having thought that, his thought immediately is, 
man's made a little lower than angels, but he's going to be in charge of the world to come. There are, this is one of three, place, three categories, I guess, of where our involvement as glorified saints in the millennial kingdom is laid down. The suggestion is here that there won't be angels administering things in the millennial kingdom as there are angels administering things in the world today. They will be retired. And in their place will be glorified saints, church saints. Now, I don't know how far we can carry it, but it gives us some idea of how we may be involved during the millennial kingdom. Maybe much as angels are involved in the kingdom world of today. But we will, it says in the Bible, reign, serve, and, and put into subjection in the things of the world. Rule. Those are specifically laid down in Revelation and here. So angels are not so important as some would like them to make. They're not going to rule in the world to come, number one. And when Jesus came down to do the work he did, he came down and became a man, not an angel. He could not accomplish the work he had to do unless he became a man because he had to die and suffer death, and for that he had to be flesh and blood. He had to partake of the human race. To be a proper substitute, an appropriate replacement in the death on the cross for all mankind. Verse 6, but one in a certain place testifieth. That certain place is Psalm 8. I love to go there and develop that, but I don't have time to do that. Psalm 8, where, God's, where God, the psalm says, look at, the, look at the creation around you. Look at the heavens. How vast they are. How diverse they are. How beautiful they are. That God created. And yet he cares more about you and you and you that he cares about all the great creation which he created and sustained. That's amazing. They say that every star has a fingerprint. That you can take that star and analyze the light that's coming from that star and every star will be different of all the millions and billions of star out there. And you know what they also say? That the DNA of every individual in this room, not only that, but every individual alive, not only that, but every individual that's ever lived, has a different DNA fingerprint, footprint. We're all different. We're all made uniquely who we are. And God loves every one of us. And is not willing that any should perish because in that diversity he has a plan for the future. He loves you. He died to bring this great salvation to you. And if you don't accept so great salvation, you'll not only not be able to escape, you'll not accomplish or be privileged to share in all the great salvation that God has to share with you. All the great salvation. I made us him. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him, man, a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. When it says thou madest him a little lower than the angels, it's speaking of his rank 
in terms of his position in the creation of things. When it says that he crowns him with glory and honor, it speaks of his dignity. He was made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. That's how God could become incarnate. That's dignity. And then he gave him dominion over the work of God's hands over all creation in the Garden of Eden. That's dominion. And then finally it says in verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, man's feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, mankind, he left nothing that is not put under him. We say, wait a minute, that's not right. Creation isn't all under our dominion today. Well, that's right. That's why the next verse comes. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But one day all things will be put under him, under mankind. He will rule over the earth because the curse will be taken away, Revelation chapter 21. And we will enter into the eternal state and have dominion over the new heavens and the new earth wherein there is no curse. And all things will be in subjection to man as God originally planned it to be in the, in, in the, in the life he lives with Christ there in the new Jerusalem and in the heavenly new created earth. I've got destiny in your notes. I don't like that. Let's call that victorious future. Would you take that destiny out of there? It's the words of a commentator I should have changed. I don't like the word destiny. It's, it's victorious future in Christ. And he has a place for each one of us in that eternal place now chapter 2 verse 9 goes on to describe this salvation so we start with our first of 11 accomplishments of Christ in the incarnation but we see Jesus in other words we've got this problem in that we're supposed to be in, in, in dominion over everything and we're not and so the, the answer but, but, but wait we see Jesus that's the answer to why things aren't in dominion now because of our sin and fall at Adam and why they're going to be in the future. The key is Jesus. How can we, how can we neglect so great salvation which is in Jesus? Now watch this. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. But we see Jesus. Jesus is the solution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect the work and incarnation of Jesus? Crowned with glory and honor, and he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Do you know what death is? Uh, we, we get the impression, and some people actually teach, that death is a cessation of life. No, death is the beginning of life eternal. Actually, life eternal begins, can be begin before that. But uh, you, when you move from death into the next world, you're, you're moving into eternal life. It's not a cessation to, to exist. 
those who have refused this salvation in Jesus are spending that eternal life in hell. And those who have received Jesus Christ are spending that eternal life in heaven. What death really is, is it's a separation. It's a separation of the physical body from the spirit, soul spirit, that lives within that body. And they're inexplicably united in the mortal lives of us who sit here today. In James chapter 2, verse 26, For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The body without the spirit is dead. You know, in some ways I can hardly wait till this body is dead and I can get out of it. Because it doesn't mean I'm going to cease to exist. But I'm sure going to get rid of these shakes. And that stumbling around and all that stuff that marked the curse of Adam on me, in which I participated, by the way. So death is separation. And in order for Jesus to die, who is spirit, he is God, he is spirit, he had to take on flesh and blood so his spirit could be separated from his body and he could die, which was the penalty for sin. Angel can't do that. An angel is a spirit being, no flesh and blood, although they appeared at times as if they were human. That, that was an apparition. They, they, they are not spirit and blood and flesh. They are purely spirit. But we are flesh and blood and spirit too, soul spirit. And Jesus had to come down to our level, which some people considered even lower than the angels. We're, we're under authority. He had to come down to our level in order to do what he had to do to bring about our salvation, both in terms of taking a lost, unsaved sinner to salvation, deliverance from hell, and taking that person subsequently as they live out the life to live a life of purity and righteousness on this earth till they die or till he comes back, and to grow and grow and grow what we would call progressive salvation. But we see Jesus made a little lower than the angel for the suffering of death. Notice that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, no matter what their DNA is. Everyone. That's individual there, by the way. He died for everyone. He died for you. Christ shed his blood for all men. And he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Only Jesus could do that. Because only Jesus is God, which makes him an infinite person. And as an infinite person, righteous and holy, now flesh and blood, his death upon the cross is capable of providing the salvation, paid the penalty for an infinite number of people. And there won't be an infinite number of people. Because when time comes for him to come back, all that cycle stopping, but every one of you is a part of that group that 
he's calling. Individuals. So number one, he tasted death for every man. Now look at Hebrews 2.10. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It became him, Jesus, for whom are all things. It became him in the sense that it was fitting and right that he should do that. It's how scriptures say, scarcely will man give his life for a friend, let alone for a sinner or an enemy. It was a righteous, wonderful act of Jesus to die on that cross for all mankind. It was fitting. It was right. And, and, and all things were made for him. He was the creator and the sustainer. And one of the marvelous, marvelous teachings of the last chapters of the book of Isaiah is that God reached out and he tried to find an intercessor that would intercede between him and his creation. Because if there was no intercessor, he had no choice but to destroy everything that he had created because it was cursed by sin. And he could find no intermediator that was adequate or could even approach him to try to bring man and God back together. And he was obligated to destroy his creation. The only way he could stop that was to provide that salvation himself. The only way he could stop that was to become a man himself and to die and pay the penalty on the cross himself. And so he did. And so he did. To save the very thing he created and sustained for his glory, he had to become a man to die, to retrieve it from its lostness. And it says, uh, in bringing many sons to glory. Sons are his children, his created children. Unto glory is unto what he intended for them in the first place. Ever hear sometimes people use the word glory as a substitute for heaven. I'm going to glory. You heard the songs? Now, I can't think of any right at the moment. The songs that talk about glory. Glory. It's a word speaking of heaven, eternal life in heaven in order to take many to glory. And to make the captain of their salvation perfect. He is the originator, the founder, the initiator of our salvation. He had to take that step in order for us to ever be saved. And he was made complete through sufferings. Complete is means mature. In other words, when we look at his sufferings, we find that he did not turn away or sin against God even once. He was perfectly sinless. That showed his perfection, his maturity before God and reassured us of what his hope for us was. And it was through sufferings, much suffering. And so he brought many sons to glory. Has he brought you to glory? Have you put your faith in his shed blood on the cross? Are you trusting him in his shed blood on the cross to deliver you from the daily temptations that you face? In both senses, he brought many sons 
unto glory and continues to do so. Verse 11, for both he, Christ, that sanctifieth, and they, believers, who are sanctified, are all one, for which cause he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. We hit this point a moment ago. I pounded on this a little bit. He became a man, not angel, didn't he? And we became a man in the broad sense of the word. He became our brother, the brother of all, all humans, because he shared in flesh and blood just like all humans do. And he became a brother unto them in that sense. But then, when he died, those who come to know him truly become his brethren spiritually and eternally. For both he, Christ, that sanctifieth, set apart, and they believers who are sanctified, set apart from the world, are all one, for which cause Christ is not ashamed to call them brethren. It, it gave me great joy as a young man. I was privileged to have wonderful parents. I was the only brat, and uh, they supported me in everything I did good. When I got an award in Boy Scouts, they were always there. When I... I my dad, <laughs> I, I went out for football, and my mom was not at all excited about that. I always wanted to play football. And uh, so I went out for football. First year I went out for football, it was bigger school in downtown Mishawaka, and I had no idea what organized sports was like. I didn't have any idea uh, what they put people through to get them in shape to, to kill themselves on ball field. And <laughs> Mr. Teagarden, ah, here's her tough coach. I had to have cleats. My folks said, that's awful expensive to buy a pair of cleats. You know, the cleats, the big, heavy football cleats. But they, fin they finally bought them for me. I should have bought them for myself, I guess. I don't know. And I went out for football, and they made us jump on our belly and crawl and turn over and do push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks. And when they were done with me, I was standing along the fence with four or five other guys with a dry heasel on Lincoln Way as everybody watched by and looked at us. And I decided I had enough football. <laughs> and I, 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 bought, I, bought, I felt bad about the cleats. Well, I'll tell you something, though. I learned a lesson about that. And that was, I'm not going to quit. I changed schools. We moved the country. And I was at Elm Road School the next year. I said, I'm going out for football. So I went out for football. By the way, well, no, no, I was not, yeah. thinking this through again. I went out for football. And I stayed out all year. Coach wasn't as rough. It was easier. But about four or five games into the whole thing, my dad came to one of my games to see me play. And guess what? One guy came at me and threw his elbow up under my face mask and broke my tooth, my front tooth. I've had a cap on it all my life. Well, I stayed out the whole year. I, but my folks were always there. It always made me feel good about my family, about myself. And, and that's, that's what is the idea here. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He loves you dearly. And, you, and when you get saved, I don't care how dirty, rotten your history has been, when you get saved, you become his brother. And he's not ashamed to claim you as his brother. 
Isn't that wonderful? How it really encourages to serve faithfully. He sanctifies, sets apart, both in salvation and throughout life, those who receive him, number three. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy, Christ is speaking, God, I will declare thy, God the Father's name unto my brethren, to his believers. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. There is illustrated in the Godhead the same kind of love and devoted commitment as God calls for us to give to him. And Jesus Christ, in the purpose of the incarnation, became the Son, subordinate to the Father, not equal with the Father, but subordinate to the Father. And as he has opportunity, he sings praises to his Father as an example of how we should sing praises to our Father. And we are all brothers. He made us brethren to Christ, saying, I, Christ, will declare thy, that is God the Father's name, unto my brethren, believers, in the midst of the congregation, will I sing praise unto thee, unto my brothers. We become his brothers in a literal, related sense. I was an only child. So I've been observing siblings. And there could be a lot of contention in siblings when they're not living for the Lord and in the world. But when they love the Lord and are trying to follow him, you'll see some of the most beautiful things happen that you've ever seen in your life. I've seen in my family and I'm seeing right now in some activities that are going on. The most wonderful brotherly love that you can imagine. And that's how our relationship with Jesus would be. He'll love us. He'll, he'll hold us as brethren as he goes to his Father. He made us brothers in Christ. Verse 13. And again, I, Christ, will put my trust in him, God the Father. And again, behold, I and the children... That's believers, which God hath given me. He points us all to the Father God. Because in the great plan of salvation and Trinity, Jesus Christ is the intermediator who through him we are reconciled to God, the Father. That's a picture here. And it says he will put his trust in him, God the Father, and again, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Seems that Christ is marveling in the outcome. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is declaring the security of the believers, which God hath given me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. For now, for we now belong to Christ, and we are secure in him. We not only are rest assured and comfortable in him today, but tomorrow, and the next day, and the next year, and the next year, and the next decade, and the next millennium, we're secure in Christ. 
because he's made us his brother. I mean, I mean, my children have brothers and sisters, and there's no way you can change that. No matter what they say or do, they're still brothers and sisters. And that's what happens when you receive Christ. You become his brother or his sister. And there's no way anyone can change that because you have been irrevocably united with him through the shed blood of Christ. We now belong to Christ and are secure in him. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. We're building on what we've learned already, that through death, which would only happen if he took on flesh and blood, right? Through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. There's a devil solution here. There's a devil solution here. You want to get the devil off your back? Christ can help you do that. It's only through Christ that you will accomplish that. He has destroyed, he has destroyed the devil's power. Destroy in this context means the annulment of his power. He not only delivers us from sin of the flesh, but from the power of the devil. Verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's an awful thing to live in fear of death. The homeschool uh, Academy of Arts, which Jonathan Barrows is about, they put on production this weekend on Adonira Judson, who went to Burma. And part of the major contribution to his salvation, according to the play, was one night when he happened to stay in God's providence at a certain hotel in a certain room that was one of the few rooms I think left in the, in the hotel. And the, the lady warned him there was a man in the next room who was dying. And it might be somewhat disconcerting to be in the room next to him for all, all the trauma that was going on. But he said, okay, so he, didn't. He, was, he was a rank, rank infidel. His father had been a preacher but he was a rank, rank infidel, totally rejected his Christian heritage. And he went up and slept in that room, and he heard this guy next door crying out in fear and terror of facing him at death until it became quiet, and he found out the next morning he had died. But he also found, in the midst of his beginning to feel guilt and and insecurity and a burden that he needed to go tell that guy how he could face death with confidence, which he never did. He found out that that guy was the very guy that had led him into his infidelity, into his unbelief, and he was dead, and there was nothing he could do to change it. And it was through that seed that his burden for the world began to develop the fear of death fear of death you know 
I've never faced this situation, but I've been told that a good soldier going into combat where there's a lot of bullets flying has to make up his mind that if he dies, he dies. But he's going to go ahead and do his job. He's not going to fear death. He's not going to fear death. And then he can be a good soldier. But you know, you can't go and not fear death unless you have some answer to what comes after death. And that answers in this great salvation. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. He took on him the seed of Abraham, not only flesh and blood, but flesh and blood among the descendants of Abraham. What is going on here? The Abraham covenant could not be fulfilled without his incarnation. The promises made to all the Old Testament saints about the kingdom could not be fulfilled without Jesus' incarnation. So when he took on flesh and blood in order to maintain the promises made to his people in the Old Testament, he took on not only flesh and blood, but the flesh and blood of the line of Abraham to fulfill the promises of the Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis chapter 12. He became the promised seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to, me, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. It was necessary, it was indispensable that he become a man in order to reconcile us to God. Number nine, by the incarnation he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Number ten, by his incarnation and death he is able to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And then finally, verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He is able to assist in supplying what may be needed in times of temptation, whatever temptation you're facing. He can walk you through it. Maybe in un unexpected ways, but he can walk you through it. Now, I want you to get the big picture here. Go back. Here's the question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, look at this salvation. Look at this salvation. Number one, he tasted death for every man. Number two, he brought many sons into glory. Number three, he sanctifies those who receive him. Number four, he made us brothers in Christ, to Christ. Number five, we now belong to Christ and are secure in him. Number six, he has destroyed the devil's power. Number seven, he has delivered men from the bondage and fear of death. Number eight, he's be, he became the promised seed of Abraham. Number nine, by the incarnation, he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Number ten, by his incarnation and death, he is able to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Number eleven, he is able to assist in supplying what may be needed in times of temptation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation. 
No more law. If you don't know Christ, you're living under the law. If you're just trying to live up to a moral code to please God and get to heaven, you're living by the law. And I guarantee you must have a fear of death. But no, no great salvation is given to us. And when we look at the law, verse 2, it's not a very promising future. When we look to Jesus, everything comes together, both in this life and in the next. So I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and just think this moment. Think this moment. Where are you in your relationship to Jesus? Do you know him as your Savior? Young person, children, have you received Christ as a substitute for your place on the cross? Those of you who know him, maybe you've walked with him long years, is he still your first love? Do you still realize what all he did and does for you? Are you calling upon him daily, even constantly, for direction as you walk through your life? Do you let him know that even in your conscious moments when you're not actively praying or thinking of him, that your dependence is placed on him? Oh, please. Please answer these questions truthfully in your own, whole, own soul and heart. For how great salvation. How shall we escape? How shall we escape hell if we ignore the great salvation in Christ? How shall we escape a fruit-filled, fulfilled life if we don't look to Christ day by day? Father in heaven, We need you to prick our hearts to hear your word is precious and true. May, may each one respond, each one, because you love each one. Each one here is different. Each one is loved by you individually in a special way that is unique from everybody else in the room because you are who they, they, they are who you made them to be and they're individuals and you love them each special. And as they come to you as, as children crying out, Abba, Father, save me through Jesus' blood, you have a special place in your heart for that particular child that you designed to be who they are for the work you want them to do. Oh, Lord, soften our hearts. In Jesus' name.